Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Well, today it is absolutely freezing in Cape Town. It's a very chilly 13 degrees Celsius here, which I, I suppose for anybody who lives in the Northern Hemisphere and anything north of uh, England or Canada will probably laugh at to say that that's not freezing. That's balmy, sunny, sunny weather in the middle of summer. But in Cape Town, it feels cold and uh, we're all dressed up in our woolly jumpers and our tops and uh, got some hot chocolate planned for later and fires mm-hmm. burning when we get home. But uh, it's, it's one of those relative temperatures where if you live in England and you say to somebody, it's freezing, it is probably naught degrees. Whereas in Cape Town, freezing is anything below 10 degrees Celsius. Ross? Yeah, I mean, I I, um, I do a bit of work with people in Ireland, and I can tell you that the temperature in Ireland today has the same as it is in Cape Town. And it's summer there, spring there. And it's, uh, it's summer now, I mean, mid-June, surely we're talking summer, right? <laughs> We've had the two worst days of our winter, and it's still warmer than it is in the middle of, well, the start of this summer, so... And in many parts of the world, I imagine, I mean, if you live in Durban here in South Africa and uh, those sort of areas where it's quite tropical, it never drops below sort of 15 degrees and then they're putting in the fires and that sort of thing and the woolly jumpers. So, yes, everything is relative when it comes to temperature. And I guess you just adapt. And I always feel a bit sorry for people who live in those northern temp- northern hemispheres when it gets really cold in winter. But then I'm always reminded by the fact that when we have cold temperatures here in the southern hemisphere, we are not really designed for it. Our houses are not double glazed windows and, and insulated. Whereas if you go to the Northern Hemisphere where the temperatures do drop close to mi- minus something, um, that the, the facilities in places like England, for instance, are much better designed for cold weather. So they actually wouldn't suffer as much as we do when it's cold. Needs must. If that's <laughs> where you live, that's how you adapt. And, and the thing about it, interestingly, physiology, we're more adapted to the heat than we are the cold. Yes. Uh, our, our physiological responses to the heat are really good. And in fact, even from an evolutionary perspective, we've evolved longer arms and limbs mm. relatively, specifically for the point purpose of heat loss. Put us in cold environments and we actually don't do that no. well. We have, and we'll discuss these in this podcast, we have some adaptations that help us cope with the cold, but they're actually quite limited in comparison with the heat. Yeah. And so we had to use our brains, not our bodies, to try and figure out other ways to stay warm. So there you have it. That's our theme for this uh, week's podcast. We're going to be talking about cold weather, how it affects sports people, how it affects our bodies, and um, what we're responding to. And we'll get into more detail about that. But uh, as usual, we're uh, starting a new feature every single week where we have something that caught either Ross or I, our eyes or anybody on our patron supporters. If you're whatever patron supporters are on there and they've got something they want us to talk about and something that they've seen on the media or anything like that, they're very welcome to send a message 
message to us on Patreon Messenger, and we'll get into that. But this week, Ross has got something that's caught his eye. Yeah, so this is the second time we've done this, but the podcast with the first one will still be going out. So you as listeners wouldn't have heard this yet. <laughs> so by the time you've heard this, you'll know what I'm talking about. But please, if something catches your eye, whether it's sports science or sports news with a science twist, let me know and we'll discuss it on the podcast. That's for patrons only. And if you want to join, of course, you know where to do that. This is a paper, though, that I saw it came across uh, Twitter, and it deals with COVID and long-term consequences. It caught my eye partly because we've been discussing this quite mm. a lot on our rides because mm. we're all going through similar post-COVID uh, re- rebounds yeah. or failures of rebound in some instances. Yeah. So the paper was published in the Journal of Applied Physiology, which is a good journal, by the lead author, Peter Ladlow. And it's called The Effect of Medium-Term Recovery Status After COVID-19 Illness on Cardiopulmonary Exercise Capacity in a Physically Active Adult Population. So it's a mouthful. But basically, how do your exercise performance variables change when you're recovering from COVID? That's what it's about. I mean, it is a huge topic. Massive. And there are going to be so many. Because the reason this one caught my eye is because it triggered an association with a couple others. In actual fact, I've got three articles to tell you about today. Mm-hmm. This particular one, what they did was they found 113 people um, and they divided them into four groups. 27 of them were hospitalized at the time of COVID infection, but still symptomatic even now, five, six months later. Mm. Eight of them were hospitalized, but have recovered now, five or six months after. 34 were non-hospitalized, so they call it community management, but still symptomatic. And 18 were community management recovered. So it makes sense that at the time you had it, the severity is determined by your hospital, yes or no. Mm. And then after recovery, it's determined by do you still have persistent symptoms? That's the kind of long COVID. And what they did with these people, in addition to 26 controls who were matched for age and sex and job, is they put them through what is quite a basic exercise physiology test. It's a graded test on a bike where they pedal at an easy power output and every couple of minutes it gets a little bit harder until they effectively fail maximal exertion. And then at that point, they measure what's called the VO2 max. We're all familiar with this concept, right? And they compare, among other things, VO2 max. And what they find is that those who were hospitalized have got a significantly lower VO2 max than the controls, even 160 days on average after the infection. Wow. And if you are still symptomatic, then you are also suppressed relative to the controls. So of all the people who had COVID, the only ones who look normal relative to a non-COVID affected population are those who were community, and it was less severe COVID, mm. and who've recovered at this point, six months, five, six months later, right? So in total, I mean, out of the 113, only 18 look kind of normal. Sure. The other 80 have all got some sort of suppression in their maximal work capacity on a bike, in their maximal oxygen consumption abilities, and so on. So this is a disease that sticks around even when the disease is gone, the effects thereof, right? Yeah, I mean, I went to see a doctor earlier this week and she was talking about how COVID um, potentially disrupts all the body systems, um, everything from your heart rate to your breathing to weird pains that people get, you know, mm. from chest pain to everything. And uh, this kind of supports that because, you know, there's a lot of talk about this, particularly amongst athletes, because it's always seems strange to me when you hear some of the pro athletes who have got COVID and three weeks later they're back riding grand tours and riding events. But for the average person out there who's had COVID, 
it seems to last and linger a lot longer than two or three weeks. It can, not in everyone. Not in everyone, I suppose. But there yeah. are unfortunate people, and this was always, this was the case for flu as well, right? Some mm. people would get flu, and it would just take them months and months to recover. And I remember studying with someone who had a theory that there were some people who had flu that would never recover because they would exercise at the time of the flu, and it would become almost a chronic condition caused mm. by that. And so it stands to reason that when something like COVID comes along, it's going to do the same thing, but worse. Yeah. And that's what this shows. I mean, only 20% of sure. this population, those who were less affected at the time of illness and who've recovered, look normal relative to controls. The other 80% either still have symptoms or they were hospitalized. And even though they recovered, they still look suppressed. And that's that's concerning, right? That's reason enough to say like, okay, fine, we're out of the worst of this, but let's not get reckless. And then not to pile even more into that, there are other papers that have found the same thing. I mean, there was a paper that was published in Nature Medicine, which is a very good journal. That was earlier this year in March. And what they found was they looked at a database of 154,000 people who had COVID. Mm. And they compared it to two separate databases, one of which had 5.6 million people who didn't have COVID and 5.9 million people without COVID. Because then what you do is you track those people over a long time and you say, how many, what proportion of the COVID group had cardiovascular issues in the 12 months after compared to what proportion of the non-COVID control group? And what they're showing is that there's a significant risk of a number of different cardiovascular diseases. They include cerebrovascular, so that's brain strokes and hemorrhaging, dysrhythmias in the heart, ischemic and non-ischemic heart disease, pericarditis, myocarditis, heart failure, and thromboembolytic disease. So these are not things you want. No. That's not that's not like I'm out for a week with a cold. That's a problem. Yeah. And the COVID is increasing the risk of developing those. And then the final one, going back even to 2021, is a very clever study that was done, published in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, looked at wearable technology. And they gathered data from 234 COVID-positive individuals and another 600, let me just get that number for you exactly, 641 individuals who were COVID negative, but also reported having some sort of respiratory illness or sickness, maybe a common cold or the flu. Mm -hmm. And they compared resting heart rate, steps taken per day, and sleep quality, because all of those things are measured by your smartwatch or your uh, Fitbit or whatever it is, right? Mm. And they find that resting heart rate in the COVID group remains elevated up to about 50 odd days after infection. Sure. So, in fact, they say, uh, did not, resting heart rate did not return to baseline on average until 79 days after symptom onset. So it's almost three months your resting heart rate's elevated. Wow. Step count and sleep quantity also go down because now you take fewer steps when you're sick and sleep quality gets worse. They only return after a month. So it takes you a month after symptoms to get back to normal. And there was a subgroup, 5% of them, <coughs> who had been affected the most by COVID. So in other words, that was highest frequencies of coughing, most severe reporting of headaches. So at the time of infection, this was your worst group. They had elevated resting heart rates for more than 133 days. So that's four and a, bit, four and a half months. Sure. So the picture is pretty clear. Is it? I'm when you get blown COVID, away by those numbers, to be honest with you. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not like there's any doubt, is there, that this, this disease has... Not to, no, not to anyone except a flat earth <laughs> equivalent. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a picture's clear, right? Yeah, 
I'm you, surprised it's that clear, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, so the management now, and I mean, we know a pe- few people involved in professional sports teams, they're, they're taking pretty serious steps. When an athlete gets COVID, it's, right, it's your seven or eight days, we're going to monitor you very intensively. Then when you start making a return, we're going to have a graded return to normal activity. There are cardiovascular screens that are done on these athletes to make sure that they don't develop these complications like signs of myocarditis. So they're potentially doing cardiac MRIs and other ECGs during exercise to just to make sure that they're not exposing athletes to risk as a consequence of the lingering effects. Have you managed to chat to, for instance, people who, like I know you know a guy, Adrian Rotuna, who mm. works for the UAE Emirates team. Has he, has he explained that that's what they're doing at, at that UAE team? That's exactly what is happening really? there. And uh, John Dresner, who is based out of Seattle, works for the Seahawks American football team and is also headed, he headed up the NCAA, you know, their college sports system in the mm. aftermath of COVID return to play. They developed guidelines that were similar to what the cycling teams are doing, where it's a comprehensive cardiac screening before they allow that athlete to return to pre-COVID training levels. Because I've yet to hear of an athlete that's had to either retire from the sport um, or, or give up um, well, purely because they've had numerous bouts of COVID. I mean, I read it the other day that Alex Dowsett, the British uh, time trial star, mm. I mean, he's had COVID three times in the last year um, and struggling to get back again. Um, but obviously, you know, hopefully he's one of those that recovers quickly. But there must be the number of athletes who are one of those groups that don't recover and therefore will never get back to where they were as professional athletes. Well, there's Sonny Corelli, right? We spoke about yeah. him on this podcast, had a, I mean, a life-threatening incident. And mm. were it not for the presence of doctors at the finish line. If, in fact, that's the best time he could have chosen for that to happen. He didn't choose. But mm. It's the best time fate mm. could have chosen mm. for that to happen. Mm. Because he was able to get the necessary care and the defibrillation. Now has an implantable um, pacemaker or, or a defibrillator. So that wasn't directly linked to COVID, Not was it? directly. So yeah. that's the problem. That's the first thing that's at play here is that mm. these events do happen. Mm. You know, we discussed on this podcast before. I forget exactly what the incidence is, but they're, they're not common, luckily, but they're not zero out of 100,000. So they do happen. Mm. Now, in theory, they're happening with more prevalence than ever before. So, but linking them is difficult because oftentimes sudden cardiac death is the first sign of an issue and mm. it's very difficult to attribute anything to it, whether it's the disease, mm. illness, flu, or some underlying cardiac myopathy or pathology, right? Yeah. Then I think the other problem is that, not, not a problem, it's a good thing, is we know that athletes are relatively protected because they're so healthy. It's in the general population where you have less healthy people with hypertension, existing cardiovascular risk factors, potential diabetes, obesity, that's where COVID was having its greatest effect. So in that study that caught my eye, they were not a healthy population. That's why so many of them in that 113 ended up in hospital. And the people who didn't go to hospital were far healthier than the ones who did. So athletes Mm. probably, if you want to find someone least likely to be affected by COVID, either in the acute or in the long term, you'd go and find an athlete. Yeah. But it's going to make a difference. You mentioned Dowsett. I know of a couple of other players in team sports and we know of other cyclists and runners who just, you know, you lose a month maybe if you're yeah. badly affected. Then you've got the compounded issue. I mean, you, you're going through this right now. It's like mm. you lose the training time at the moment of infection and illness. So you lose fitness. And then if that thing sticks around, you've got two things to overcome when you start mm. again. It's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. And this long COVID, no one yet knows exactly what it is. It's there's a... Top research at Stellenbosch, who I've seen some articles by talking about it's 
It's an inflammatory condition that just persists and you get coagulation, for instance, of your cells in the circulation. So they, they mm. clump together, causing all these things, fatigue and mm. symptoms and so on. It's, it's concerning. It's, it's concerning, I think. I know we've got plans to get a heart specialist onto the pod in the next couple of months where we'll talk specifically about um, maybe the effects of COVID on heart particularly, but also heart conditions and how that can affect um, athletes. So we'll, we can delve into that with more detail. And as Ross has said, this is obviously a subject which we'll keep monitoring all the way through because research is coming out on this all the time. Yeah, there's and loads of papers now. Yeah, mm. and it's probably the, the one area where there's the most amount of research done, particularly this, in long COVID. This thing, I mean, you know, people, even the skeptics were saying, oh, yeah, COVID's going to enrich a few people. Like This long COVID and its implications for general health is going to be I think the big medical thing in the next five to 10 years. Sure. So anyway, th those are the three yeah. articles and I will make sure we put those in the show notes. You yep. can have a read of them and follow the threads and see where you land. You know, and I yeah. hope if you're listening to this, you're not one of those in the, yeah. in the studies. In the studies, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Ross. That is uh, certainly a good caught my eye. And don't forget, if you're one of our Patreon members, you can submit your caught your eye on our Patreon messenger board. And if there's anything that uh, catches your eye, please let us know and we can discuss it and delve into it. Anyway, let's move on to our subject of the day. And uh, we would, as we said in the intro to this podcast, it's a little chilly in Cape Town today, but nowhere near as chilly as it was at the Tokyo Winter Olympics uh, recently. But, uh, or Beijing. Oh, Beijing, sorry, yeah. not Tokyo. <laughs> Tokyo was the Summer Olympics. So Beijing. And I think what was interesting about that is we saw some of the adaptations that athletes had to make in terms of cold. That really gives you an idea of at the at the very coldest of events when you're, when you're participating, there are extreme... Um, precautions that have to be taken but let's let's start off with the basics when we talk about cold what do we define as something like hypothermia because when anybody talks mm. about cold they thought about getting into the water as a swimmer and you get cold you get hypothermia your body freezes mm. i suppose there's mm. a bit of a medical term for that and then you die <laughs> well what is the what is the process of hypothermia and it, and and how, how does it affect whether we're on land or water or all those yeah so thermia temperature yeah hypolo and hyper high, right? So mm. hyperthermia is I'm running in the in the heat of the Death Valley or whatever it is, and I have no access to shade, water, or anything, and I overheat. Hypothermia is the opposite. So now the body temperature drops, and your normal temperature is probably around 37. Let's call it 36.5 to 37.5. Yeah. When it drops to about <laughs> 35 degrees Celsius, that's classed to be mild hypothermia. So you don't need that's, much of a change. Well, that's already a lot because you'll start shivering at about one degree colder than your normal. Sure. And you know how you feel when you start shivering is actually like, I'm cold, man. Pretty I'm going to sit in front of a fireplace or get the heater going. Yeah. That's, that's <coughs> only like a one degree Celsius drop. So your body doesn't really want to be cold. It's interesting when we exercise, and I alluded to this in the introduction, is the body's quite happy to allow us to get hotter while we're exercising. It's an accepted trade-off. Mm. And so we can get to 39, 40 degrees Celsius, three, four degrees, three, let's go three degrees hotter than normal, and we're okay. We don't even all, know we're it. adapted for heat, aren't we? Yeah, and Many there's ways. a change in the brain, the set point. <clears throat> no one wants to be functioning at 35 and a half degrees Celsius, let alone below 35. That's not comfortable. And the mm. body tries really hard to keep us warm. So 35 and below is hypothermic. Once you get below 32, that's and then 27 yeah. is now catastrophic levels of hypothermia right. the lowest temperature ever documented to have been survived 
is 13 degrees Celsius body temperature. I mean, well, that's, well, let's, that's first of all, when you say, how do you measure body temperature? I mean, in other words, is it somebody sticking a thermometer in your, in your ear? Um, or I, yeah, ideally centrally. So in other you, words, you swallow a device. Yeah, or you'd have a rectal probe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> swallowing the device is always more preferable. Preferably, <laughs> indeed. So tympanic temperature at the ear, when you're sick and your mom says, let's take your temperature, she might do it at the mouth. Those are good guides, but ideally you'd want it central because that's where the that's where the action takes place, right? So the right. Scent, the organs. Yeah, so that's So in other words, if they took, if you were doing a science experiment and they took the one where you ingested it, that would measure your temperature in your core, in other words, in your stomach. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and, and that's the most accurate way of measuring it. Right. right. So that's kind of the gold standard now for these studies. Right. And as I say, there was a skier, name was uh, Anna, Swedish skier in Norway in 2000, held the record, I believe it's since been broken, Anna Bergenholm has a little fall while skiing, goes through the ice head first. Mm. Friends manage to catch the skis before she's totally submerged. Calls emergency services seven minutes later. Takes them almost an hour and a half to get there. By the time they get her out, she's in the teens, body temperature. So now she's 20 degrees colder than normal. I mean, this is... This is like one in millions survival yeah. chance. Right? She should be dead. Take her back to the hospital and start warming her. Now, what's really interesting is that when they warm you from this catastrophically cold conditions, they have to do it by taking your blood out the body and warming it on a heating block. Wow. Because if you warm the person's skin, then what happens is the blood goes to the skin. But then in order to get there, it's got to go through all those frozen cold tissues. And then when it goes back to the center of the body, it carries all that cold back into the middle. Make sense? Yes, yeah, that's so it actually, interesting. So actually the process of warming you can be very dangerous because it causes an after drop. So you can't just shove somebody in a hot blanket? No, no, because oh. in actual fact, you warm them from the outside in, and then the cold, the skin's still cold, but it's getting blood, and then the, the cold gets carried back in. Wow. Oh. So they warm it like that. It's called extracorporeal warming. Sure, that's interesting. And... Uh, it causes a drop, so she ends at 13.7 degrees Celsius. And after about 90 minutes, she's up to 80, uh, 30 degrees Celsius. And after three hours, back to normal, temperature-wise. But sure. six months of intense rehabilitation, because all the tissues and the nerves get damaged by extreme cold. It took her years to regain normal function and ski again. Wow. So it's a, it's a big deal. But that was the record. And then I read, that was in 1999. In t- 2010, there was a Swedish skier, young girl called, I forget, Sarah, I think it was, who broke that record, survived a 13 degree Celsius body temperature. Wow. So that's now the extreme, extreme, extreme. In sport, you're never looking at that. And I mean, in Beijing, yeah. you weren't looking at that. There were cross-country skiers that said that they were shivering when they finished the race. That's 35 and a half. Mm. They're shivering. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So that gives us a relatively good idea of the the, the numbers in terms of that. Because I didn't realize that you could be 30, 35 would be reasonable and you'd still feel a bit cold. But mm. 35 is you're feeling properly chilly. Yeah, so there's we, not much to play with there. We'll get onto it. But Lewis Pugh was that cold water swimmer, swam at the North and the South Pole. Yeah. And I was involved in the testing and the prep and stuff for that. And he would finish his training sessions or get out of the water and back onto the boat. Mm. Body temperature 35 and a half. Obviously, you can't take the blood out and warm him the the proper way. You don't need to because he's not that cold. Not that cold. But he would sit in front of a heater with a hot blanket and warm clothes or a hot shower. His body temperature dropped to mid-34s, shivering violently. Sure. But half an hour later, good as new. Fine. No problems. Amazing. Yeah. So in the, in the 35 range is where you really know things are going wrong. I mean, you... One, half a degree Celsius, you're saying, give me give me a jacket. Mm, mm. <laughs> Let's go sit inside. I'm cold. 
Yeah. So uh, from what I, when I look at cold and I look at the effects, I think of three things that obviously you've got your air temperature, which is a key. And whether mm-hmm. you're in a room or outside, you've obviously got whether you're on land or water. And you've obviously got things like wind chill factor. Let's, let's, we talked a little bit about air temperature. Obviously, it's fairly obvious if your air temperature is low, your body's going to get, is going to be, it's going to be cold. But can you talk to us a bit about water versus land? Mm. How that differentiates? Because I know your body reacts differently in those two environments. Yeah. So they both, they both remove heat from the body by convection. That's, Mm. that's in effect liquid or air movement over the over the surface and it takes heat away so that's why on a windy day you'll get colder wind removes heat because it's so, removing heat from the upper surface of the body exactly mm-hmm. so the the skin has a temperature let's say 31 degrees celsius and the air temperature is 14 degrees celsius and so you're you've got a gradient hot to cold airflow accelerates the removal of that heat from hot to cold mm-hmm. right okay water conducts heat or convects heat let me be accurate way way faster like 20 fold faster than than air ah, okay. and so that's why water poses the greatest dangers of getting really really cold so it's almost pulling the heat out of your body yeah it's just removing heat at such a high rate that unless right. you are generating heat to match that rate of heat loss you are going to get much colder in water than you would in air much quicker Right. I suppose it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, yeah. You, and you know that. I mean, it, I mean, people will have the experience you're in a swimming pool and you get out and you feel cold. Mm. And that's because the air is moving that cold water and you're also losing heat through um, evaporation mm. <laughs> of that water. Mm. So it's accelerating it for that moment. So that was on land. I mean, we all know if, the, if you're exercising, obviously when you're exercising at a certain rate, you can heat your body up and mm-hmm. ambient temperature can be overcome by just a high rate of work. That's a massive it, component, yeah. It, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And mm. and is same applied to, uh, to swimming or anything so water-based? No, it's actually the other way around. We'll, so we'll get to that. But basically, when we're on land, um, exercise defends body temperature very effectively, mm. even in the absence of clothing. Mm-hmm. So if you are ever stuck in a really, really cold place, the harder you can exercise, the better off you'll be <laughs> because you can, you can, and then one of the problem is with it, when people get stuck on the mountain and it's cold and the cold weather comes in, the problem is they just cannot keep their metabolic rate high enough. Mm. So you've either got to find somewhere warm to shelter down, you know, hunker down for the night, stay warm that way, or you've got to like plow through it and generate enough heat to compensate for the heat loss. Yeah. Makes sense. And there are other challenges compared to that. Right. Exactly. That's what we always talking about ultra, super ultra distance um, cycling and running. One of the biggest issues that you're not operating at a high enough intensity exactly. to defend against cold. Exactly, yes. And clothing then obviously starts to become the thing. So they know, for instance, that if, you, if you're at five degrees Celsius, which is cold but manageable, mm-hmm. like it's a cold winter day even here, mm-hmm. Multiple layers of clothing are necessary if you're going to stand still. You go outside on five degrees, you need to have warm clothing, many layers of it. Yeah. If you're exercising, you can get away with one layer at minus 18. So that's a 23 degree Celsius swing in temperature. Yeah. And exercise is able to compensate for that plus the loss of some clothing. That's how powerfully that effect works. Do you know what the in, the intensity is needed there? I mean, <laughs> is it difficult very, to? I don't know. Yeah, it depends but on the still person. Still shows you right? the effects of of work. It depends on the person because yeah. the heat production is basically proportional to your metabolic rate. Because mm. remember, heat's produced because muscle contractions inefficient. So, the harder you're exercising, the more heat is produced. And there's an equation: rule of thumb, four times mass times velocity. So. It's proportional to your mass, 
bigger people produce more heat and faster running produces more heat, for instance. Mm. If I'm exercising and my VO2 oxygen consumption is twice yours, I'm probably producing twice as much heat as you at the same mass. Makes sense. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. So that's on land. Now in water, the opposite is the case. And it's really interesting. So 2004 paper. In other words, the harder I swim, the colder well, I'm going to get. Not necessarily the harder, but in general, exercise is detrimental in water to body temperature regulation. Okay. Which is the other way around. We're saying that. Yes. On land, exercise keeps you warm. In water, exercise might make you colder. And the uh. reason is, yeah, and the reason is that when we are at rest, our muscle, underperfused muscle, and it's muscle without blood flow, provides about 80% of our body's insulation. Then when we start exercise, what happens? Well, the blood then moves to the to the limbs to keep them moving, I suppose. Yeah, and to keep deliver oxygen and yeah, fuel and yeah. so You're going to get your PhD from the <laughs> university but does of it sports. But does it move out of the essential organs into the working limbs? Yeah, the body's clever yeah. and it redistributes that mm. blood. So mm. you get vasoconstriction in certain circulations where it's not needed and you get vasodilation, which opens up the blood vessels at the skin and at the muscles so that we mm. can get the blood flow where it's required. The problem now is that the blood flow to the muscle causes the muscle to lose that insulating ability. So where a person at rest has got insulation from muscle and fat and skin, a person who's exercising only has it from fat and skin, right. not muscle. And the result of that is that when we exercise, we actually decrease our insulation capacity and huh. mobility. That makes sense? Yeah. And that's why, yeah. quote from Stocks 2004, for water temperatures less than 25 degrees Celsius, Whole body exercise is detrimental for thermal homeostasis. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When I used to lecture this at university, in simple says, terms, if it's below minus 25 degrees, you cannot. Not minus. 25. So 25 degrees, yeah. sorry, 25 degrees. Mm -hmm. So if you if you were swimming, you couldn't swim forever in that water temperature because eventually you would get too cold, you'd, you'd actually, even at 25 be, degrees. That would be the situation where you were, anything cold in 25, you'd have a call to make. You'd have to say, can I swim fast enough to get to safety before I get too cold? <laughs> or do you I see, rather bob up yeah. and down and what's wait for rescue? <laughs> what's interesting about that, if you look at triathlon rules here in South Africa, where if the water temperature is below 24 degrees, you can swim in a wetsuit, but right. anything above 24, you can swim without a – in fact, it's windsuit, you can't swim in a wetsuit. Mm -hmm. So actually, 25 degrees is, you know, if you were swimming three, four, five kilometers, which a lot of people do, that is risky even with the water temperature that is relatively warm because 25 degrees water temperature is relatively warm. Anywhere yeah, yeah it is. I mean, that's yeah. in, the, in the gyms. It's only slightly cooler than yeah. what you jump into at the local club. Right. And that water feels actually like, on some days, feels like bath water. Yeah, yeah exactly. Now, it's <laughs> interesting because the, the, how, how do we know how long people can survive in cold weather is from some pretty dubious experiments. Okay, so... <laughs> Like unethical. Not a lot of volunteers. No, no. And, and so they were, they were, I mean, it's, it's brutal. Like a lot of the stuff we know about this comes from concentration camp type research. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's an, actually an ethical question as to how that gets used now. The other place it's known is from shipwreck survivors. You know, they'll fish these people out and say, when did you go down? Okay. And they work it out. And it, it turns out, and, and one of the 
great researchers in this field. There's a guy called Mike Tipton who sadly passed away last year, but he's published a lot of stuff on this. If you're interested, you go and look up Mike Tipton cold water exercise. He's your man. <laughs> and he's published papers, and I'm again, I'm quoting from him, and he, he says here, uh, the body of an adult contains too much heat to become hypothermic in water at any temperature within 30 minutes via surface cooling. So even at zero degrees Celsius, we will last for 30 minutes. Right. Which is interesting, right? Because a lot of yes. people say, you'll freeze to death really fast. You don't. No, you don't. You've actually your body got does have insulation. You've, you've got a lot, a yeah. lot of heat to lose before you get hypothermia-induced right. issues, right? Our skier, for instance, was stuck in freezing cold water for an hour and a half. Now you have a problem. Mm. But 30 minutes, it's you're just, okay. It's still survived. I mean, in, in Cape Town here, one of the most popular beaches is Clifton, typically 15 degrees Celsius. Yep. That's the kind of temperature that makes you gasp when your ankles get get swept up by a wave. Mm -hmm. It's cold. You'd last for about an hour and a half in that water before you even enter like a marginal zone. Wow. Six hours before it's definitely going to be a problem. That's a lot. See, so all those Wim Hof method people are probably saying, I told you we can You, you can puzzle. definitely do it. <laughs> and we'll get on to like human, the human polar bear, Lewis Pugh. Not, there's nothing spectacular about that. It's normal physiology. Okay. Um, Sorry, Lewis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like everyone's a polar bear because that's what we are. We're heat-producing mammals. <laughs> now, the, the problem is not then so, I mean, hypothermia. It, 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 it's I mean, functional. So, sorry to sort of reiterate this because I want to be clear that I'm understanding correctly. So, I mean, that's an extraordinary fact to suggest that even the average person in freezing water can survive half an hour. Um, without any sort of cold water adaption that we are designed yeah. to do but, that. So but, Okay, now we are generalizing. Eh? Yes, we are. Obviously, an exceptionally yes. skinny person without yes. any body fat who yes. tries to swim has got a big problem. Right. Because they've got no fat to insulate. They're trying to swim, so they've got no muscle to insulate because as we've just discovered, once yes. we exercise, the muscle perfusion knocks out the muscle's right. insulating ability. Yeah. So all they're relying on is skin. Mm. And at one or two degrees Celsius, that person is not going to cope for yeah. more than a few minutes, right? Yeah. But a typical adult, larger adult with mm. typical body fat measures is going to survive. If they try and swim, their survival time drops, but they've still got minutes, not seconds. Yes. <laughs> and You don't suddenly freeze to no, death. No, yeah. exactly. Right. It's, you've got more time than you'd realize. Interesting. But I suppose the dilemma is, do I swim or do I not? You know. Mm. And if you can see the land and you think, okay, that's a kilometer, 25 minutes if I go for it. You must go for it. But if you can't see the land, you might as well bob up and down and hope a helicopter spots yeah. you. <laughs> That's an interesting to live. <laughs> That's why we said, like I used to teach it, and I used to use that scene in Titanic where Leonardo DiCaprio falls into the cold water yes. and say, like, he's got two choices here. He can swim as though his life depends on it, because it literally does. Mm -hmm. Or he has to bob up and down and hope someone in a rescue boat comes and fishes him out. And he bobs up and down, but not long enough. Not long yeah. enough to be yeah. fine. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah. 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 Okay, so yeah, so so yeah, so there are very different factors involved in, in air and water. And yeah. obviously yeah. we'll talk yeah. but and I, I don't mean, just to, I don't mean to trivialize, maybe we park mm. this for to later. The, the, there's a massive physiological challenge of swimming in cold water. Yes. Uh it's not hypothermia. You know, like hypothermia is the end point that people very rarely even get to because of this thing we've got so much heat and so on. Mm -hmm. The problem is practical, functional. How do I swim in this condition? Because I'm going to feel cold and things are going to change. My nerves, my muscles, my breathing and so on. 
that's a that's the bigger problem. It's not getting cold; it's feeling cold. There's a difference. That's between true. Breathing things. is a big issue in very cold water. Oh, it's, we all know it's like it? just jumping into a cold pool. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's incidentally that's what causes most drownings in cold water. Is you there's a reflex called the cold shock response. You know that thing where you walk into the ocean and you go, <gasps> yeah. That's not attention seeking behavior. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it is because you want your mates to know that. What you, a legend you are. <laughs> yeah, but actually, that's a reflex, and it's an involuntary situation where you take a gasp because of the cold, and then what happens beyond that is you hyperventilate for mm. a long time. So right. they've done studies of cold water showers and so on, and the breathing rate goes up through the roof. I mean, like mm. you know, normally you might be taking ten to twelve breaths per minute. You stick someone in really, really cold water, it goes up to 70 breaths a minute. Wow. Now imagine trying to swim. Yeah. You've got to coordinate your breathing with your stroke at 70 breaths a minute. You've suddenly no you're sucking chance. in water. Exactly. Yeah. And so sure. if you if you take that gasp, if you go overboard and you, you can't control that reflex and you take that gasp in the water, one and a half liters of seawater is enough to drown you. Mm. So mm. one breath could be literally the cause of enough. drowning. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Well, there we go. I mean, all the swimmers out there. And I, one of the things I've always wanted to ask, and I don't know whether you even know the answer to this, but I remember talking to one of these cold water swimmers once, and they were describing how you never see a skinny cold water swimmer, obviously, because no. you need to be able to insulate your body to some extent. But they talk about how fat through adaption accumulates around the organs rather than the body as they adapt to cold water swimming. So we accept that the average person can survive longer than we think, but cold water swimmers. Have they actually adapted their organs to be fattier and, mm, and more resilient? Good question. I yeah. don't know. I remember, I don't remember coming of, across yeah. that in, in when I was looking into that. this with, with Lewis Pugh, you know? There's yeah. definitely body fat we know definitely makes a difference. They've done experiments yes. where they'll put people in uh, in cold dish water, like we're talking twelve to fifteen degrees. So cold but not freezing, for an hour and People with body fat percentages below 12, just there's a straight line from their start temperature, 37 and a half, and after an hour, they're at 35 and a half. Just get colder and colder mm. and colder. People who are above 22%, so that's higher body fat percentage, they don't drop at all. Yeah. It's literally the difference. It's a two degree Celsius difference. Just over based an hour. on body fat percentage. Just based on body fat percentage. Because when you look at those swimmers who do swim across the channel and do those, you know, super mm. long swims, none of them are built like Tour de France cyclists. No, they <laughs> they're, 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 they're big, be. And, big people. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, with, with Lewis Pugh and the planning was going on for the South and North Pole swims, if he was doing other exercise, cycling and running, he was not able to swim effectively in really cold water. So, he had to adjust all his other activities and change his diet specifically so that he could get one or two percent more body fat in time for the cold water swimming. Well, so let's just put into context. I mean, we have mentioned Lewis Pierre a couple of times, and let's just put into context the story about him. Obviously, a South African who was famous. He's been appeared a lot of commercial ads as a result of his uh, achievements in cold water swimming, and uh, people called him the human polar bear. And famous for swimming, what was it, a mile in Antarctica? It had, it had to be a kilometer to, Cause be, you were involved to be classified in that, you? as a record. Yeah, it was in, a, I forget when it was, mid-2000s. Mm. And he approached the institute, spoke to Tim Noakes, and Tim said to me and- This a, is the Sports Science Institute right, in Cape yeah, Town. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tim Noakes said to, uh, to me and a, a colleague, a PhD colleague, Jonathan Dugas, mm-hmm. like, sort it out, you know, help us go out. So what we did was we went to the waterfront, which is a local- Spot here, and if you go around the back, there's got all the fisheries where they, they and they've got ice to burn, so mm. to speak, ice mm. to melt, as it were. And they set up a little pool, one of those plastic pools that you would have for kids, right? Mm-hmm. Two meter deep and three meters diameter, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and we tethered Lewis Pugh to a bungee cord and anchored the other end of it to like a, a fence <laughs> and he would just do basically water treading swimming like it's like a swimming treadmill we made yeah and over the course of a month we just progressively made that water colder and colder so I remember on the first day we'd go in there and we say all right the water temperature is eight degrees celsius get in here for 10 minutes and just tread water so next day six degrees celsius for 12 minutes and progressively and eventually we got down to 20 minutes at four degrees we said okay you're ready and then so the change went off and swam yeah so what what were the adaptions yeah, from so that? this is where it gets this is really fascinating so yes a few different things happen number one is that that cold shock response gets blunted and this has been known the navy exposes its its swimmers to cold water regularly because it knows that if you practice it you get better at it it's classic physiology actually right and the aforementioned mike tipton has done these really nifty studies where They'll put people in cold showers or cold baths and they measure their breathing rate and ventilation. And after exposure for even a week, every day for three minutes, that is blunted by about 30%. So where before my breathing rate goes to 75, now it goes to 60. Hmm. So it comes right down 20% or so. And so what that means is that you breathe less often and less deeply. That helps your swimming, right? So you get better at it. Your shivering response gets delayed because once you'd get below 35, 36 degrees Celsius, you start to shiver. But now when you're shivering in cold water and trying to swim at the same time, this is not a good combination because it makes you progressively less efficient as a swimmer. Mm -hmm. And what happens with regular cold exposure is that you shiver less often and you start shivering later. And the reason that happens is because other heat production, because that's what shivering is, right? It's, a, it's your body's kind of last resort at saying, Get heat out. Mm. Produce heat. There's other the ways. Shivering can, produces heat. Itself. Yeah, there's yeah. other ways to do that. Very creatively named non-shivering thermogenesis, <laughs> <laughs> and they involve hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. And what happens in these regular cold water swimmers is that they upregulate that side of the equation, so that they need to shiver less often and later. Make sense? Right. Yeah. Then the when other you say upregulate, in other words, their body does that. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It's all. It all it's not chemically induced with cortisol injections or something. No. Like no. That. No. The yeah. body. The body. It's chemically induced with cortisol, but it's all coming from inside from the, the body. body. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> then the other. Then the other big thing that compromises cold water swimmers is their their nerve and muscle function is compromised. You know, like. I think everyone knows that when you're really cold, you just can't exert force. If you if you get out of a really cold swimming pool or the ocean, you you just aren't strong because the signals from your brain to the muscle and back to the brain are slowed down. Isn't there a protein that needs to operate yeah, at a certain temperature? Therefore, all proteins. So in other words, muscle if they, is if, protein. If the, if the protein can't be broken down, it can't be used at a certain temperature. Not even broken down. It's just, remember, the, mu the process of muscle contraction involves proteins, mm. myosin and actin, interacting with one another. Mm. There's an optimal temperature range. The enzymes need optimal temperature mm. to, to function and so on as well. So, <clears throat> so it comes right down to sort of cellular level as to why we... Yeah, yeah, at we, the molecular not, level, cold yeah. hurts us. And so there are studies, Stephen Chung is in Canada, he's shown that if you cool the skin, the muscle gets weaker. <laughs> Right. So even cold skin compromises performance. Cold muscle definitely mm. compromises performance. They do these these cold studies <coughs> and they find that if you measure grip strength before and after a cold water bath, it's down 20% for every degree Celsius. I think it is that your, your muscle temperature has fallen. <laughs> so for a cold water swimmer, whether it's Lewis Pugh or someone doing Robin Island or the channel, whatever it is, they need to make sure that they become quite good at defending against those drops in temperature. 
And that's what training gives them. It gives them sure. the ability to keep that muscle temperature one degree higher, that nerve, nerve temperature half a degree higher. And so that means they become better cold water swimmers technically. Mm. And, you, and you saw this. I mean, there are studies that have been done where they'll stick people in, in cold baths and make them swim. And you can measure swimming efficiency, like fuel efficiency in a car, mm. in meters covered per liter of oxygen used. Jeez. Right? So you're going you're gonna, to, I'm going to measure one liter of oxygen consumption and say, how far have you swum? Okay. And they work out that when you start out, you cover maybe 15 meters for every liter of oxygen. Mm. At 25 degrees Celsius water, by the hundredth minute, so an hour and a half later, you're still at 15 liters, uh, 15 meters per liter. At 10 degrees Celsius, it's down to five within 45 Jeez. minutes. So you just you just can't swim <laughs> at the same <coughs> sorry same oxygen consumption, right? Mm, yeah. And th and the reason that happens, incidentally, is because of the hyperventilation. Your stroke gets shorter and shorter. Because your fingers curl. <laughs> Have you ever been so cold that your yeah. fingers cramp up yeah, and yeah. curl? Your elbows get locked in like a 30 degree locked position. Basically, you go from becoming like a really smooth, long stroke. You basically end up thrashing the water like mm. a little Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah. And so you can't swim. Yeah. So all these things in Lewis Pugh were being learned through exposure to the cold. Mm. And by the time he went off to the North Pole, he was just a a trained cold water swimmer and that's all it was you know and that's why it's fascinating that the body can adapt because it's a, obviously it's a tremendous depending on population groups so you imagine that people mm. who live in the northern hemisphere or participate in things like the winter olympics they they're more they're more cold adapted than us softies yeah, yeah, here yeah, in the southern sure. hemisphere and even to the point over generations they become different mm. shapes Yes, you know, there's a there's a thing. I think it's called Wolf's Law. It might be a computer one. I've forgotten this now. But the point is that at the equator you get elongation, and at the poles you get shortening. And so you think about the Kenyan figure: long legs, long skinny yeah. tendons, elongation of the limbs, the, the arms and legs, right? right? Whereas in the North Pole you get the exact opposites. And that's that's not just humans. That's all animals. There's a ratio. <laughs> there's a relationship between the mass and the length of an animal, and it changes depending on latitude because of the cold. I'll check what it's. For some reason, it's, it's slipped my mind. That's now. a I'm, that's I'm a very nice up. David Attenborough fact. It is, yes. That's a lovely little piece of uh, information. I'm just trying to think of a good um, cold animal. Bergman's rule. Bergman's rule. I don't rule. know where I got wolf from. Bergman's rule is that within a broadly distributed taxonomic clade, populations and species of larger size are found in cold environments, and smallest size are found in warmer environments or regions. So closer you get to the equator and they use an example here of penguins short stubby ones at the little ones at the poles and longer skinnier ones at the yeah at that's the true centers. yeah so there you go yeah good example mm -hmm. interesting okay so okay so let's talk we've talked a little bit about the cold water swimming thing and it is a fascinating one and i think for those i, I remember doing a bit of cold water swimming you know a couple of 10 years ago or so where we did a 10 kilometer swim around a dam at one point and um you know trying to stay it it wasn't it wasn't the the effort of the swimming that made the biggest difference. It was the cold that kind of got to us. And there was a great story how there was a couple of guys who came and did the Robin Island swim, which is here in Cape Town from Robin Island to Bloberg. And traditionally what they used to do is they used to rub um, fat, um, animal right. fat on them. Yeah. But then they realized pretty soon that animal fat wasn't a very good thing because there's quite a lot of sharks in the area. So that, then yeah. they I started using story. petroleum jelly to do it instead yes. of animal yeah. fat because yeah. it was less attractive to the sharks. So right. yeah. there are other things that cold water swimmers have to deal with in terms of uh, handling those sort of swims. But it is remarkable what people can do with I those always, cold swims. I always thought it was like the cleanest and best example of 
how any human could adapt to the situation and the stress and the challenge it was preparing mm. for, you know? Mm. Mm. And I mean, the same, I don't think it's that different for, say, running a marathon. We can't all run a 204, mm. but I think every human, if they train and prepare, can achieve the adaptations to make them run a marathon in the same way that every human can achieve the adaptations to swim in cold water. Mm. Mm. It just requires maybe some things you don't want to do like how, how prepared are you to put fat on <laughs> yes. but if you expose yourself to it regularly and you know there's a community of these cold water swimmers in cape town yeah, big time. the first time you do it i mean you, you got a headache in 20 seconds yeah. and you're out you'll be able to do the robin island swim if you just keep at it because mm. your body will learn you know yeah yeah uh, you've given I, us a great I, segue into my next question before the segue i failed because yeah. bergman's rule is the size small at the equator and large at the poles alan's rule follows on from bergman's rule and that's that Animals that are adapted to cold climates have thicker limbs and bodily appendages than animals adapted to warm climates. So right. Bergman's rule and Allen's rule together explain how we evolve adaptations depending on latitude. That's a, that explains the size of, a, of the legs of a polar bear, I suppose. <laughs> you know? In contrast, a Kenyan long-distance runner. <laughs> anyway, exactly. So now, you know, Bergman and Allen, I had to, I had to do that to correct myself from earlier. Not Wolf. There we go. A, Anyway, so yeah. talking about the question of, I mean, we talked about the effects of swimming, but one of the things that we're very close to is the world of athletics and mm. cycling and all those sort of endurance sports. Is there an optimal temperature that people can run a marathon at, for instance? You guess what it is. There is. There is. There is, and it's a theore it's theoretical because so one of these yeah. classic examples of when you work it out theoretically as opposed to real life, it maybe is different. Uh, I promise you, I haven't discussed with this Ross before the podcast, so I'm taking a complete fly here. But here's my rationale. I think it has to be cool, but not too cool, because it affects the body's ability to be able to operate. So I'm going to say 12 degrees Celsius. Colder than that. Colder than that? Yeah. So the 8 degrees. The theoretical one, and this, mm. yeah, I, I, that's probably right. The theoretical mm. limit, they say, is like 3.5, 4, which three and is and really four. cold. That's cold. Really cold. I don't think that that's true. Um, that comes incidentally from a study that was published in 2012 from a group of scientists in France. And basically what they did was they looked at 1.8 million performances in the major city marathons. Uh -huh. So we're talking Berlin, Chicago, New York, London, um, uh -huh. Paris. And they worked out how fast or slow people were depending on the temperatures of the day. And then they apply some nifty mathematical modeling to it. And they find that the fastest runners perform the best when it's in the low single digits. So it's somewhere between three and four degrees Celsius. Wow. That makes sense that the fastest runners like the colder, right? Because they're generating the most heat. So much heat. heat, yes. The further back you move in the field, yes. the more, the warmer you need it to be for optimum temperature. Because you're not generating as, as enough right. intensity. And if you didn't understand that before this podcast, now you hopefully do. That was followed up by a paper that was published actually last, uh, earlier this year, January this year, in Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise, where they looked at 1,258 races, right from 5,000 all the way to ultramarathons, 50K race walking and so on. And their finding was that it, they used this machine learning method, and it's mm. very, I don't fully understand it myself. <clears throat> they, they basically found that anything between 10 to 18 degrees Celsius air temperature was likely optimal which is a little bit warmer mm. even than your guess of eight, but considerably warmer than the French one of three to four. Yeah. Um, but the difference in this study was that they also looked at other factors like humidity, wind speed, and, and interestingly, solar load, because all those things make a difference. And 
In fact, solar load is what uh, radiation. radiation. So okay. in other words, yeah. if it's sunny versus cloudy, you know, right. solar load is high versus low. And they found that air temperature of the elements that go into making up the weather, <laughs> air temperature is the most important for performance, makes up a relative score of forty percent of the of the total, followed by humidity at twenty six percent. Then solar radiation, 18%. And interestingly, wind speed was only 16%, which is interesting. Sure. I suppose partly that's because it's a circular, most of the time, circular course. And so sometimes mm. it's a tailwind and sometimes a headwind. I don't know. But in any event, what they have ended up concluding is that the, the optimal temperature is in that band. And for every, uh, I'll read to you what, exactly what they conclude, is that for every degree Outside the optimum conditions, performance declines by 0.3 to 0.4 degree uh, percent, which is a lot, or which is quite a bit. I a mean, lot. one okay. for so a the three, for so a th- the drop off either side of that band is a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, lots relative, right? So th- mm. if you're a yeah. three-hour marathon runner, that's 180 minutes. One percent is 1.8 minutes. So 0.3 percent is 0.6 minutes, 40 seconds. Well, it's not that much. No, actually. it's not that much. No. So if it's five degrees colder and it's two percent, now it's a six-minute swing. Uh, sorry, a four-five-minute swing. So is it? I mean, is it? Just to conclude this section, is it fair to say then that at a higher intensity, the lower the temp, the lower the temperature is can be to be optimal. Yeah. But obviously, the high, the lower the intensity. So for me, traveling around at the back for a full four and a half hour marathon. Um, my intensity is going to be lower, which means the higher the temperature there, 12, 13, 14 degrees might be better for me. Yeah. Because I won't be able to keep myself warm enough to survive three, four degrees. Exactly. Because yeah. your, well, your not survive, metabolic, but be optimal. Your metabolic rate is not anything like what the rate is of the guys running the one, or the yeah. 205 marathon at the front. Yeah. And so your heat loss is going to exceed your heat production by quite a margin right. on a really, really cold day. Yeah. Cold, windy day, even more. So you would need it to be slightly warmer. So it's difficult, really, to give an exact number on what the ideal, correct? Because everybody's but variable. The, the paper by the French authors from back in 2012, I think it was. Did I say that earlier? Yeah, 2012. They've got a table that gives a range of performance capabilities, and then the what they think the optimal temperature is. But it's a lot. It's colder than most people would think, right? Um, yeah. Which is why an athlete looks oh, perfect day. Everyone else says, "Are you mad? It's cold." Yeah. But if you're not. You know, I remember the rule of thumb for a runner is if you're standing on the start line and you're not slightly cold wearing your shorts and your vest, you're overdressed. Yeah. If you're, if you're warm enough at the start with a little tracksuit top, I mean, gonna, you are going to be overheating within five minutes at the start. 100%, yeah. yeah. If there's one thing I've, I've taken out from what you've said so far, I mean, you've often advised people working on the magazines and runners' world and bicycling, that, exactly that. Mm. Like, you need to walk out the door feeling slightly cold, but not too, mm. because you will warm up significantly. Yeah. And as you found out, that, that warming up action is, is significant. Correct. Yeah. Then, then you see where it gets even more complex is, the extremities get cold yes, even when you're exercising. So your true. ears and your hands. And that's why when you watch some of these city marathons, if it's a cold day in Chicago or New York or a particularly cold Paris marathon, the, the 205 guy will finish with a beanie and gloves. That's right. <laughs> that's true. Because they their body temperature might be close to 40, but they feel cold at the hands and mm. at the... And so then that's why I don't think three degrees is optimal because I think it actually creates a sense of discomfort that mm. probably then cancels out the thermal advantage. Mm. So, so if we think of the, the body as like whole body thermal mm. and then you get peripheral temperature, those two things might not necessarily be aligned, you know?
And you often see, particularly in those sort of full marathons, where um, particularly the women's runners run with the ear, earmuffs. Yeah, yeah, um, earmuffs, arm warmers, ears. gloves, yeah, right, and then yeah. maybe they shed them over the course of the first sort of 15 mm. miles. But mm. oftentimes they, they'll mm. finish mm. with, and I, I couldn't do that. I mean, because yeah. I'm, I'm a bigger guy. Like, did a cycling race the other day, and after an hour and a half, the ear warmers and the arm warmers were off yeah. and it was only yeah. 15, 16 degrees on a bike. I mean, just, just talking about cycling, obviously there's a, there's a different challenge there because if mm. you think about some of the Grand Tour uh, riders that we watch on television around the Tour de France and, and, and those big events, climbing up a mountain at you know 350 watts, they're generating a lot of heat, right. but then they go down the uh, descents and those descents aren't five minutes, sometimes they're 20, 25 minutes oh, yeah. and the temperatures mm. are in the middle single digits. Yes, so particularly if it's wet and you've been yeah. sweating going up, yeah. and then you go down and there's 70 k an hour winds for that length of time. Right. And so the paradox is that at the very moment that you're producing the least heat, you're losing the most. Yeah, on the downhill, and then when you go up, you're producing the most, losing the least. So yeah. the the variation in what clothing you acquire is profound. Mm. Cycling is more challenging, you know. And the old days, I know cyclists used to take the old newspapers <laughs> and stick it down their shirts. And even now, I've actually seen I've some. I've seen it recently. I've seen it recently. Yeah. yeah, people on the side of the road with their newspapers, they shove it down the front of their jersey because it, newspaper is an incredible insulating mm. material, mm. and it keeps that core warm, I suppose, which is what you want to. Exactly, be able to- that's the key. Just, just define just define core temperature is 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 it core temperature versus something else in other words is there any other alternative to core temperature no core is body there surface temperature core body. Just, okay. of course you can measure the skin temperature right. I mean, when we did our, when i did my studies and my phd we would measure temperatures at the forehead the neck the upper arm the upper thigh mm. the abdomen the back and there are equations that relate all these skin measurements to an overall skin temperature because mm. the reason it makes a difference is cuz Heat movement's all about gradients. So if the mm. if the internal, the core core is hot and the skin is cold, you lose heat core to skin, right. then skin to environment. If the environment's hotter than the skin, then you gain heat from the environment. That's the problem. It's like 35 degrees and hotter. Mm. And then from the skin to the core. So it's all about the, the seesaw and the gradients, you know, if that makes sense. But so in theory, if the core is warm, the extremities and the surface temperatures can be cold, mm. but the core is a critical Pot that needs to be warm. Yes, yeah. and 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 for exercise, muscle. Right. As I just said, right. Like remember, if even even making the skin cold can compromise muscle force production. Yeah. Once once you're up and exercising and you're running and your temperature is quite high, I think you're okay. Mm. You you can have really cold air, and the the first half a centimeter, couple of millimeters of skin can be very cold. But there's so much heat being produced five centimeters below the skin that it actually just overwhelms it mm. but there will be a point and this happens if you go downhill and you don't pedal for 15 20 minutes that you actually get cold muscle yes. so your core might be warm enough at the bottom of the valley but your muscles and your skin are quite cold and then you've got a problem <laughs> worst i ever felt on a bike is the first time i ever saw snow i was in switzerland in 2004 mm. take my bike with and i did this pass i think it's called the grimsel's pass first time i'd ever as i say the snow line was at like 1500 meters the summit was like maybe 1800 and I of course like a kid in snow literally jumped in the snow and make a little snow angel at the top and then went down horrendous because then I tried to go up the next climb I couldn't my legs were like concrete in other words as if you'd never been doing a ride for an hour before yeah Yeah. I was I was absolutely like you know they were frozen stiff yeah I felt like my muscles were frozen stiff I can imagine I couldn't get up the next pass I had to turn back and go Mm. down in the valley and like have a 
hot chocolate and a sandwich and warm up before I could even pedal again. Because it's interesting, if you watch those pro riders, obviously they are keeping their body temperature and their legs moving even on the descents. Mm. I don't think always with the with the view on keeping them warm because they just want to be going as fast mm. as they can. But I imagine even at that level, slightly cooled muscles into the flatlands of the valley or the mountain are going to affect their performance. So they need to keep those legs warm. Yeah. 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 And this is part of it, you know, keep the circulation in the, mm. in the circulatory bed mm. because at this moment you, you, you've got so much convective cooling, especially mm. again if you've been sweating, mm. your evaporative cooling is enormous because the sweat's being blown off your body by the wind. Yeah. And uh, you, mm. you get cold quite quickly yeah. at the periphery and, and then mm. all of a sudden the muscle, the, the, the body says, hang on, I'm cold at the periphery, I'm going to save the heat by bringing that blood back to the core. Mm. Two minutes later you've got to pedal hard and you've got nothing in the mm. muscles. Mm. Interesting, so, yeah. That's a real. So it's a, it's a fun, I'd love to talk to a pro rider and ask them how much of a factor those big descents are in terms of body temperature, and what they do to offset that. Because mm. there must be there must be some skills involved in doing that. They have know? an exposure, you know, mm. just like Lewis mm. Pugh adapts to cold. Mm. Uh, you've got to mm. always, uh, I guess, mm. understand that mm. practice gives the body the opportunity, mm. if not be perfect, be better. A couple of little bits and pieces, as I know we're running out of time a little bit here, but one of the things I always find is that why does your nose run so much when you're <laughs> yeah. riding, running in the morning? I mean, I, I sometimes I've got a bit of a head cold. I go for a ride to clear the nasal passages out and, you know, you, you produce a lot of mucus when you're mm. out there riding. Why does, why does that happen? So cold, dry air causes uh, mucus formation in order to counteract the cold and the dry. So your so, nasal passages have been dried out by the air. Yeah, and then mucus production uh-huh. is a response to keep the lubrication levels high. Right. I remember once reading that very cold can paralyze the little, little hair cells and the uh, cilia and so on, which also causes the mucus to run more. I, mm. I looked that up again recently when I was writing an article for your magazine. I couldn't find it, so maybe I dreamed that. But but certainly the the, the one answer is that you, you produce mucus in response to dryness um, as a way to... Right. Effect protect okay. because dry is damaged or could be damaged, damaging. The body likes to keep things moist, relatively. Mm. So your like nose, a dog's wet nose. Yeah, so your nose starts <laughs> running as a yeah. consequence and it gets quite annoying with the old walrus tusks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, there's also an interesting piece that, uh, as you said, just mentioned a few moments ago, you wrote a piece for us on bicycling around this about how br- the bronchial system of your body, in other words, mm. your heart and lungs response to cold and how actually wearing a mask god forbid we have to wear a mask keep on wearing masks but <laughs> yeah. there's an advantage to wearing a mask in the morning and um, particularly for people with asthma yeah so asthmatics know this like this right away and there's actually quite a lot of research on bronchoconstriction caused by the cold because if you if you have asthma and you and bronchoconstriction defined as your your lungs a little tight yeah feel, like so the yeah. bronchial is the little passages that little mm. tunnels effectively that carry the air mm. through into the lungs where the gas exchange happens to mm. the blood right mm. and and yeah they they constrict in response to cold weather and that causes coughing fits and that sort of thing even in people who don't have asthma you know exercise induced bronchoconstriction is worse in cold weather and one of the ways that asthmatics have learned they can try and prevent that is to, at least for the first part of exercise, warm up with a face covering. Because then what happens is you're breathing in partly your own water vapors each time. And so the air is humidified mm-hmm. because dry air makes this constriction worse. And you warm the air a little bit by doing that. You know, It's trapping some of that air mm. at your body temperature in a little pocket. 
So it's a mixing of cold air right. from outside with the warm air from inside, and it helps protect against that almost cold shock of mm -hmm. cold air all of a sudden into my lungs. And then once your once your internal temperature is elevated, then I think the bronchioles aren't going to constrict anything like as much. So mm. it's just for the warm up. People have learned that you can wear these face coverings or masks mm. to try and get through that. And it's mostly people, as you say, who suffer from asthma. Or is the average person? I mean, how prevalent is it at the top level? I saw for some stats saying around fifty-five percent. I mean, we know we know at the very top level, fifty-five percent of what of people will have some sort of cold-induced exercise bronchoconstriction. More than half the population. Mm. Wow. Well, okay. Obviously, I was thinking to varying degrees. Like 5 to 10%. No, no, it's high. So, oh. exercise induced bronchoconstriction itself is quite high, but when you add the cold factor, it goes up to over half, according to the one estimate. And does that, that apply to elite athletes as well? <laughs> yes, but then, but then we, <laughs> you know all laugh, going we all laugh at this one because we all know elite athletes are more likely to be asthmatic than the general population. In, in fairness, the, there's two things happening there. One is that Probably the prevalence of asthma in the whole world's population is a little bit higher than we think, but a lot of people never discover that they have it because they never even try. <laughs> yeah, they don't exercise enough to know that they have a problem breathing. You know, and they, mm -hmm. what they do in their normally normal daily lives is nothing like what it takes to trigger an asthmatic episode or even the realization that I can't breathe normally. Right. Athletes, on the other hand, are stressing that respiratory system all the time, so I'm more likely to pick up. So maybe that's part of it, and then if, but then of course we also know that. So when you when you talk about that fifty five percent, you're also applying that to the an elite level of sport. So you're mm. saying that more than half sports people are on some sort of asthma medication. Uh, no, not necessarily, because that fifty five percent is not necessarily asthma. That's oh, exercise okay. induced bronchoconstriction. I thought that was asthma. Which is, so there are different no, versions no, no. of that. Yeah, diff different severities almost, you could call mm. it. Like there's a spectrum of these things where I'm completely unaffected on one end mm. and I'm a full asthmatic on the other. But a lot of people in the middle have some breathing issues and difficulty when it gets colder and when they exercise. I think I have some. I mean, I, mm. I'm, I wouldn't ever call myself asthmatic, but I definitely have difficulty. If I'm doing a hard effort on a cold day, I get a serious cough. For quite a long time afterwards. Warm day, not a problem. Humid, no worries. So it's fair to but, say that at the start of a cold stage on the winter classics in cycling, the, the, you know, a peloton and a professional peloton, there will be some of those athletes that will be will struggle in the cold. Mm, it's a risk before factor. they get warm. Winter Olympics, it's a risk factor for performance. Mm. Is a, and that's why you, you know, and people look. There's no doubt that they exploit the system. Mm. <laughs> whether there's, whether there's a benefit or not almost doesn't matter. They still exploit it. But you'll read articles about how many asthma meds travel to an Olympic Games with mm. the, the world's most elite, well-trained, fittest humans. And they've got more medication in that Olympic village than some countries have at any moment, yeah. any given oh. time. <laughs> and again, part of it is because they've recognized the need for it might be legitimate, mm. Mm. but a lot of it is actually just exploiting the system. Yeah. But the point is that when you're doing high volume intensity breathing for a long time in cold air, you are potentially at risk of some kind of breathing difficulty. Hmm. Yeah. Not asthmatic necessarily, but breathing yeah. problems. Fascinating. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't realize the prevalence was that high. And uh, yeah, certainly, because you, you often think about the, the top level of sport and you think, well, they've got to the top level of sport because their bodies are pretty efficient um, and are yeah, pretty exactly. good at sports. So there should be a lower prevalence of those type of conditions compared to the general population purely because they're 
at a higher level they've got there because they've got I think it would have been selected good. out yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so that is that's the counter argument to what I mentioned yeah, about yeah. at least they discover it and so on you know you yeah. can also make the case that actually you know that should have been the maybe the sets of things that discouraged you from pursuing this as a career in the first yeah. place yeah and restricted yeah. you caused you to come sixth in your local school event not first that's right yeah. unless yeah. unless you got access to the right meds really early you know when you were six yeah. but it makes it makes quite a big difference the, mm. the cold you know so so i suspect a lot of the time it's just a cold induced thing and it's not legitimately asthma but mm. Mm. yeah mm. but we'll try and warm the air is the is the remedy yeah much as you can. Well, another fascinating discussion, and I must say I've learned a lot from this podcast just about the cold, and I'll be starting tomorrow's ride with a buff on my lower lower <laughs> part of my face just to keep my breath warmed up but uh, and uh, go home to a nice fire tonight because, as you said, it feels cold in Cape Town today. But let us know about your experiences of cold. I think for, for us here in South Africa, we don't really extre- we experience the extreme cold that uh, lots of countries in the Northern Hemisphere and the, the Scandinavian countries experience, and I'm um, Always fascinated, fascinated to know what their experiences are and some interesting stories that they have. So let us know. You can follow us, of course, on Twitter, which is Sports SciPod, and uh, you can let us know about that, and we'll pick up all those uh, different discussions on Sports SciPod. Of course, Ross again on uh, Twitter. And if you want to support us on Patreon, don't forget you can have a look at our Patreon account. It's Patreon.com. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and you just look for the Science of Sport podcast, and it's fairly easy to see the different levels that you can join our pod our patron committee uh but ross is about to head off on a very long trip mm. all over the world ross just give us a brief summary of your travels well, over the next couple I of weeks i'm not doing this alone i mean after you well, floated we, we, the we, idea we, we might have some exciting news um <laughs> which we are going to hopefully announce next week but uh, we will hopefully see the science of sport podcast at the world athletics championships in oregon in july and we will hopefully both be there Mm. Um, You'll definitely see this half, the half yes, speaking I, now, because I, I, I committed and I booked, I booked my trip and I'm there, I'm there. So, so I hope if you'll you are, join me. if you are going to the World Championships in Oregon, please let us know because uh, we would love to interact with our listeners, and uh, we hope that uh, I think it's almost sure that we will be there in, in some capacity, um, and hopefully doing some daily podcasts and interviewing some of the best coaches, athletes, all sorts of people of interest at the World Championships. So Ross and I are very excited about that, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to meet up with some listeners. Mm. And where else are you going? Yeah, so I fly off next week. I go to London a couple of days, transit, and then I'm in Vegas. There's a there's a conference that's being put on by a group called Icons, which is a group that's been formed to try and support women's sport in the US. So it's a whole two-day event talking about women's sports, science, medicine, policy, Title IX in the US. Listeners there will know this mm. in support of that. So I'll be presenting a couple of times there. Should what are you good. presenting on? Just so I'm doing, Can you tell us? Yeah, I'm doing one session on concussion in women because the work with rugby and other sports has shown that women might be, A, more susceptible to concussions and secondly, more affected by them when they happen. So the prevention and the management issues around women's contact sport might need to adapt in order to account for that. So I'll be giving a talk on women's concussion. And then the other one is a joint panel discussion with a couple of scientists, one from Manchester, Emma Hilton, and another one from Harvard, Carol Hooven. We will be talking about women's sport and the whole transgender issue, which is, again, you know, it's not my favorite, but it's important. So <laughs> yeah. I'll go and try and represent science in that debate. Great so stuff. that should be fun. And then from there, I head up to Portland, um, or Oregon rather, mm. 
where I will hopefully wait for you to join yeah. me. In the meantime, I'm there to cycle and get a bit of work done. <laughs> yeah, so if you're anywhere near the area and you want to go for a ride with Ross, he's always available to uh, ride. I think he rode with a couple of our listeners in, in the UK recently. So Indeed. if you are in the area, don't forget Ross also on Twitter as well. So have a look up for him and uh, get him get in touch if you're keen to uh, hang out with one of our hosts. Uh, but uh, for now, it's uh, goodbye. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.